Well, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Let's uh, bow our heads briefly in prayer. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Paul writes, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since He gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself. To God. Jesus is Lord. It's a statement that uh, runs, uh, rolls off the tongue easily, fits nicely into choruses, and uh, how easily it can become an abstract idea uh, that we sing about and we detach from our lives. Jesus is Lord. And for Paul, it's conditioned everything about his life. Uh, Right back at the start of the letter in chapter 1, he makes this declaration. Uh, He says that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus is declared to be the Lord after his death and his resurrection. He always is Lord, but he was declared to be Lord, especially at his death and resurrection. And, and a couple of verses later, he describes those Christians as now belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is Lord, therefore, and we are his people. He is our Lord and he is, we are his people. 
So this idea of, of Christ's lordship is threaded through this passage in chapter 14. Because he tells us in verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. And so now in in, in chapter 14 and into chapter 15 verse 13, this is a section about how Christians are to live in relationship to each other under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, There is in the light of the, the power and the gospel of salvation that they've received, um, that they are to, to live in a particular way. And we have seen already that uh, as people become Christians, as we've studied this, chap- uh, this letter, when people become Christians, they become citizens of a new country, as it were. Uh, we enter into the kingdom of heaven, don't we? we under the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. Moved from that old country under sin. And now we're under the authority of Jesus Christ. And, but the problem is, of course, for Christians, many Christians come with the, the habits of the old country. It's a bit like a, you know, a Scotsman coming down to England and you never quite stop being a Scotsman. You have all the old habits of the past and some of them get smudged out eventually but you know, a lot of them still stay with you it's kind of like that when you become a Christian uh, you come out of the old country of the world in which you used to live and you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you love him and you're part of the you're a citizen of that new kingdom but there's still some habits from the old country that you're, you're, you carry with you and you need to learn to live under this new authority, this new king, this new power, under the gracious reign of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is Lord. And so it's no surprise that the lordship of Jesus comes up here in this passage in verse 9. Uh, because Paul has to deal with a problem, uh, which, if we're honest, we all have a tendency towards. A tendency to judge one another to pass judgment on other people so Paul's going to deal with that with this. so four things to say about this passage uh, one is number one is our tendency not to worship to welcome people into our midst number two how God welcomes those that we have trouble with It's often the way, isn't it? God welcomes people that often we have trouble with. Number three, how Christ gives us true liberty and true liberty of conscience. And finally, the great truth that in the end, it's God who judges, not us. So the first of those things is, first of all, our tendency not to welcome other people. Uh, begins in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And that tells you that there's, a, there's maybe a problem in the Roman church. That uh, it seems that some people were not welcoming to certain other people 
uh, as they came into the fellowship, they were not particularly loving to those new people coming in. Um, and there are two sides, uh, two groups of people here. What are the two, two groups of people? One is the side who's, who supposedly have weak faith. And the implication is that the other side are, are those who have strong faith. And so this is, this is not a difference between those who are fervent and zealous and pray with clenched teeth, with all energy before God, and those who are dozing off. Now this is actually about something else. It's interesting that the point of contention that Paul points out here is about an attitude to, to what you eat, <laughs> uh, which is a particular issue for the Romans. Uh, who's going to eat meat and who's just going to eat vegetables? Or maybe the, uh, the, the observance of special days in verse 5. So what are these things all about? And it seems to be about religious practices that these Christians have observed in their lives before they became Christians and now they're bringing them into Christian, the, the church and, and continuing with them. So for example, uh, Jews who are brought up in Judaism may want to still continue their religious practices that they observed in their lives before they became Christians. And so the Jews would carry on these certain ceremonial activities and certain things could be eaten, certain things maybe not. Uh, certain holy days observed and some not. Or maybe it would be converted Gentiles coming in from a pagan background. And maybe now they've got a conscience issue about meat that's sacrificed to idols in their past life. You know, they, they didn't have a problem with it before, but now they're Christians, they have a problem with it. We can't eat that because it seems to be going back to the old ways and so they're quite adamant perhaps about not eating meat just in case so you can see that in a church where there are people being converted you know, people come in with many hang ups from the past many habits many thoughts and maybe certain restrictions that they think they, sh- they can't do or can do and these are things that are brought in from the outside. And, and so here's the problem. Suppose you're a Christian, and you've been in this church for some time, and uh, you've come to realize that actually it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter whether it's sacrificed to idols. It's just food. Or that you've come to realize that in Christ the ceremonial parts of the Old Testament are no longer necessary because they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ uh, in his death and uh, sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. And so your faith is strong. You might put it that way. Your faith is strong. You're not bothered about those things any longer. What are you going to do with new people that come in and they've got some strange hang-ups and they've not come to the same conclusions as you Not yet, anyway. How are you going to treat them? And Paul says, welcome him and do not quarrel. Don't quarrel about it. 
You just imagine that there'd be some of those who think of themselves as strong taking delight in arguing over minor matters. And thinking it's really important. And Paul's point here is that when someone becomes a believer, you make sure that you welcome him or her into the fellowship. And don't major on the minor points that maybe they haven't caught up with uh, you about. Don't make people a target. Don't make, make people a project to fix. Just love them, welcome them, make them feel at home, even in all the weakness of their faith, with all their weird habits and funny ideas. Just welcome them in. Receive them. And don't let those things get in the way of the welcome that Christ gives them, Jesus gives them. Now let me be clear about one thing. We're we're not talking here about open sins. Um, We're actually as a church to to judge persistent sinners. Uh, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, verses 12 and 13 for what, what does he say he says for what, what have I to do with judging outsiders answer nothing uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge God judges, those, God judges those outside but purge the evil person from among you so the church is to have a, a discipline against sins within the church so churches uh, True churches, proper churches, have a system of discipline. But that's not what Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking about those who simply differ over things about which the Bible doesn't have anything to say. So let your disposition be loving, welcoming. Even when you meet a a prickly, awkward Angular, unfinished, unripe Christian. Love them. Welcome them in. You may, you may have a problem with Christians like that who are prickly and angular and difficult. And you may consider yourself strong in the faith. And you may want to correct people because of their foolishness as you see it. But you need to hold off. And be patient. And pray And don't pass judgment on these so-called weak faith Christians. So that's Paul's first thing. Welcoming those who come into the the church. Second thing is God welcomes those we often have trouble with. Um, And that's often true, isn't it? Uh, This is what Paul concludes in verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. In other words, the one that you may have passed judgment on is one whom God has welcomed. God has received them. And to ram this home in verse 4, Paul begins to use a metaphor, a a picture if you like. And he thinks about this household. And imagine there's somebody who's wealthy and has a servant. (coughs) And uh, wouldn't it be silly if if you were to criticize their servants, not your servant, but their servants, about how he or she did his or her job. 
Somebody else's household. It's nothing to do with you. So how would it be if you started criticizing them for their job? That servant is answerable to his or her boss. So it's none of your business. But then in verse 4, Paul abruptly switches from that picture to the church situation. And he's speaking now about servants of the Lord. And everybody in the church is a servant of the Lord. A servant of his house. Not your house. And those servants, they may be weak Christians. But he says at the end of verse 4. That servant, he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, the Lord is at work. In these servants. That maybe you and I find difficult. And troublesome. And this is actually a wonderful truth for every Christian. That the Lord upholds. And makes you able to stand. Isn't it? It's the Lord who helps us to do that. God has welcomed you and I into his house. Even though we're foolish idiots sometimes. And God has done everything that is necessary to bring you into his house. He has sent his son, who is Lord over the house, to suffer and die and rise again. He has sent you his spirit to give you new life, to bring you into Christ and under Christ. And so with arms open wide... God welcomes people into his church, no matter where they've come from. And through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, men and women, boys and girls, are able to stand because God has welcomed them. So, you know, God makes you able to stand with all your funny ideas, my funny ideas. He helps you, He sustains you. So, Christian brothers and sisters, the question is why are you passing judgment and knocking people down who are coming to church? I mean, who do you think you are? I don't know if anybody's actually doing this, but just imagine. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Passing judgment on new, weak Christians that belong to Jesus Christ, not to you. So, this is the attitude we need to have amongst ourselves and about ourselves. That we belong to Jesus Christ now. And no one may pluck us from his hand. And if we're tempted to quarrel with somebody over a minor matter. Or even to pass judgment on them. We need to train ourselves to say. That that person is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his household. Not mine. It changes your whole attitude to people in the church doesn't it? Here's a third thing. Christ gives us true liberty and liberty of conscience. Christ gives us true liberty and liberty of conscience. So he works this out in verses 5 through to 9. And notice that in verse 5, Paul recognizes that there is an issue over which there are differences of opinion um, about you know, one day being better than another, uh, whereas some others think all days are alike. Uh, there are different opinions. And the Old Testament has uh, festival days that some believe would sh- still need to be observed. 
Now, does Paul give them the right answer here? Does he say, okay, you're all arguing about it, but here's the right answer? Well, this is what he says in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced on his own mind. Isn't that curious? <laughs> Whatever it is you believe, just be convinced in your own mind about it. And what's important to Paul here, and what should be important to us here, is that you have a mind that is at rest in the convictions that you have. In other words, that people have a clear conscience about what they do. And the last thing you want is for people in, in the church is for people to, be, to feel that they are being coerced by others into certain behaviors. Sometimes that can happen. Where people become hypocrites in the church. Because they're doing things that they don't really believe are important. And the last thing you want is people who have not really thought things through and not been convinced about something, but towing the line uh, just to avoid controversy. It could be about what you eat or drink. It could be about what you wear. It could be about what kind of quiet time you have. It could be a load of things. But it's those kind of things where some churches might seek to lay down rules. And we need to avoid that. There are legitimate differences of opinion. And we mustn't oblige believers to conform in every single possible way. Otherwise, that's not true freedom in Jesus Christ. To feel that your conscience is coerced into a particular course of action. Of course, there are matters that are serious, matters that concern sin and false doctrine. And as sinners, sometimes our consciences don't bother us when they should bother us, and that's because of our sins. But those consciences need to be educated and shaped it's one of the transforming works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms our minds, doesn't he? He transforms us into likeness of Christ. And part of that is a transformation of our consciences. So that whereas once before certain things never bothered us, sins that we indulged in never bothered us, now they do as Christians. And the Holy Spirit is about that work of shaping us and reshaping our consciences. But that's why the, the ongoing ministry of the word is so important in a church. That's so that our minds are transformed and not conformed to the world. And so that increasingly we approve of the will of God in our lives, Romans 12 two. But on secondary matters, there's freedom. There's not coercion, freedom. So... You see, going back to eating, as Paul does in verse 6, both sides need to be able to give thanks for what they eat, whether you're eating meat or not eating meat. And that's maybe one of the tests, that you have a settled and convinced mind that you or I can truly give thanks to God for what I eat and not worrying about what other people think about it. And just imagine we were in Paul's time and there was a strong constituency among the congregation in Rome who didn't want to eat meat for fear of uh, being tainted by sacrifices. 
And because of social pressure, you feel you couldn't eat meat, even though you're, you yourself are not convinced. You might not be thankful for your food as a result. What a terrible thing to eat food and not be thankful for it, because you're guilty. You feel guilty because of what other people think. And you're not under the lordship of Christ anymore, but under the lordship of man. And in the end, you know, it comes down to this in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And it's incumbent upon every believer to bring every thought, every word, every action under the submission of God, of the Lord alone. So that before him, you and I, we have a settled mind and a clear conscience and true liberty. Does that mean you can live like you like? You can be sloppy, lazy in your study of God's words? Not care about whether or not you're sinning? No, of course not. The person who has this clear conscience is also a person who's carefully studying things. Looking into things carefully. Because he or she loves the Lord and wants to be submissive to him. As Lord of the household. And this is the role that Jesus has now, that that once dead, now living Savior, who is Lord over all of our existence, whether in life or in death, it's in him that we find true freedom. And that's the thing that we must be most concerned about, that we live for him in everything and seek only his approval. Here's the last point this evening. Only God can judge us. Only God can judge us. Paul returns in verse 10 to a question he asked in a different way in verse 4. So verse 10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now in the light of what he's taught about the lordship of Jesus Christ, he asks, Why do you pass judgment on one another? And the implication is clear. You have no right to pass judgment on one another on those disputable points. So we're not to have that censorious attitude, a condemnatory spirit towards other Christians in the congregation, especially in light of the fact that all of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of God. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that... uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, that that quotation there in verse 11 is from Isaiah 45, not from Philippians chapter 2. Um, Philippians 2 gets it from Isaiah 45, 23 as well. Each of us has to give an account of our lives before God. So just think about that statement for a minute. Everybody has to give an account of their lives before God. Are you happy with that statement? thought we were righteous in Christ. Doesn't that mean that because of Christ's righteousness in which I'm now clothed, he sees me through as having Jesus' righteousness? Isn't that true? So how should we give an account before God? Well, that's only partially right. It's true we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And it's a glorious truth for the Christian. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful truth in which the true consequences of our sins are taken away from us. Uh, no longer, there is no longer wrath for us. And so there is a separating of sheep and goats at the final judgment. So Matthew 25 tells us that. And whether you're a sheep or a goat is determined by whether or not you're in Christ or not. So you either have Christ and you're a sheep, or you don't have Christ and you're a a goat. You're either one or the other. However, that's not all that is said about the judgment seat at the end. It's not all that Paul says about it. Because here he says there will be an accounting of our lives before God. And it will involve us bowing the knee, confessing our lives and our sins before God, and giving an account for every sin and every action. And that's as far as Paul goes in this passage about the judgment. And his reason for mentioning that final judgment of believers is actually so that we pay more attention to our own lives as we walk in Christ. You know, there's a, there's a, a view around that because we are righteous, righteous in Christ, we don't actually have to care too much about how we live now. But Paul seems to think differently here. He says we live in the light of coming before the throne of God, even as Christians. And we have to give an account for the way that we live and how we treat people, treat people around us. And it's also clear from other parts of the New Testament that there's a lot hanging on that aspect of judgment for us. That yes, we will be acquitted of every sin. And that's far more than we deserve. But there's also a reward. Depending on how we've lived our lives. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. You might like to look at it with me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment... He's talking to Christians here. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul has this idea of what is due to us as Christians, which is conditional on what we have done. He's not thinking about salvation here. That's done. But he is thinking about reward and glory to come. So it's interesting that for Paul, it's not only gratitude for grace that drives him, saving grace that drives him in the Christian life, but also the expectation of reward at the end. And so that shapes how he lives his life. And it comes down to this very practical matter within the church. What attitude are you going to have towards those who might be weak and have all kinds of scruples about things that you don't have? Or what attitude do you have to those who might be strong and you have none of and, and who have none of those scruples? How welcoming are you to people in church 
How loving are you to them? How well do you seek to get on with them? We all have to give an account before God for the way we behave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel changes us from top to bottom and inside out. And it changes everything, even in the church. We thank you that the church of Jesus Christ is a new community of safe people, citizens of heaven. And everything about us changes. So, Father, we pray you'd help us to love one another, to welcome those who come into our midst, and to seek to be a blessing to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.